Welcome everyone to a new episode of The Money Movement. I'm joined here today with Eric Gleiman, who's the co-founder and CEO of Ramp, a high growth, high profile fintech focused on reinventing how businesses, startups, growth companies bank on the internet. Something that's obviously near and dear to our heart at Circle as well. I'm really pleased to have you on here, Eric. Thanks for the invitation. Great to see you, Jeremy. Yeah, excellent. Lots of stuff I was hoping to chat with you about today. Uh, I thought maybe we could just start with some of the basics, which are really helpful for people, which just maybe just take a couple of minutes. Mission, vision of ramp. Where are you on that journey? And then we're going to connect the dots into some other stuff too. That sounds great. I'll start with what is ramp here for? And I think it's sort of this notion of every company has a purpose. We serve thousands of companies, whether they're working on improving the healthcare system, making humanity multiplanetary. Our mission as a company is to save companies their most valuable resources. It's their time and it's their capital so they can build better, stronger, more efficient businesses. And the way we do that is by creating finance automation tools. And so we were known and power the fastest growing corporate card in the US. It's a corporate card that has built in spend controls and tools to help the average company spend less money. We also offer bill payments, expense management, accounting automation. And the net effect is that uh, when you use a, a ramp card or ramp payments in general, we're able to help the average company cut their spend by about 3.3% per year. So more dollars back to get used in your the core company's purpose. We help speed up accounting and month-end close. And so we help the average company close their books about five days faster each month. And overall, our, our focus is really trying to build tools that are so useful that whether you're a, a startup founder operating a finance teams at a large company or a small, you know, you're able to really automate really the menial and the low value parts of, of your job and focus on, you know, high value, just growing your company. So that's a bit about us, but, but happy to go deeper. Yeah, awesome. So I want to come back to a bunch of themes there in a little bit. I think one of the other big topics I wanted to talk about, maybe we'll move into that and then we'll come back to sort of the fundamentals of, of, of Ram's business is you guys made, made waves uh, recently with a blog post that you put out, which was then I think covered in, in Forbes or Fortune or, or whatever, basically about how you had looked at your own balance sheet and you had analyzed all the different ways that you could use your capital and your research led you to look at stable coins, in, in particular, you know, USDC and sort of stablecoin yields in USDC as a like really important way for, for you as a treasurer, I guess not you, your, your treasurer, your CFO and treasurer to manage, manage capital. Obviously, full disclosure, right? We're working with you on that and you're a customer of Circle and Circle Yield and everything else. But I'd love to hear your, your high level take on that. And then I have some follow-up questions. Yeah, of course. So a couple of things. I mean, just first, with obviously the lion's share and where we focus most capital for businesses really on the, on the core operations, but you know, in making sure that we have a just robust, a lot of capital for whether it's good days, rainy days, all that, we always want to have capital on the side and uh, in excess. It's our job to be thinking about you know, one, how do, how do we be responsible to investors, but also two, how do we invest capital in a prudent manner? And I think the reality facing many companies right now is 
it doesn't feel so great to have just a lot of capital earning uh, basis points every year. And so, you know, given that some of the capital that we had on our balance sheet was not going to be used for many months, in some cases, many years, given the, the financial planning that we were doing, you know, we wanted to um, look and see uh, were there more compelling ways to both increase yield on our balance sheet and balance against um, that risk. And, and stable coins were, were immediately jumped out as incredibly fascinating in that given just the volatility in crypto markets, it's created um, a world where the volatility itself is a yield producing assets and tied to stable coins actually could present a way to one effectively hold cash or you know cash-like assets on the balance sheet. So low risk in profile and also uh, collateralized here as there are a lot of things that made Circle's product particularly interesting for us, but yielding materially higher. And, and, and what jumped out pretty immediately was with uh, just a small percentage of our balance sheet, single digit percentages, we could earn as much yield as the next 95, 98%. And that was fascinating. So it was pretty arresting. And, and it's something that, you know, sometimes I think the, the corporate treasury you know, family is is stuck in tradition so much so it actually misses some of the interesting things happening in the world. So cool to be early in this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a while ago, obviously, like the, you know, Elon Musk, Tesla bought some Bitcoin, whatever. You know, these kinds of things, or Square bought some Bitcoin. And so I think there was a a little bit, you know, a year ago where people were saying, "Oh, corporations, corporate treasurers, they're all going to buy Bitcoin, right?" That that's that you know, everyone should have whatever it is, you know. 2% of their of their corporate balance sheet in, in Bitcoin or whatever. And, you know, obviously a treasurer or CFO of any business, right, is trying to think about capital preservation. Obviously, we've seen, you know, these huge moves up, huge moves down. Right now we're at a 50% decline, et cetera. And so most CFOs, whether you're a small business or a growth company or, or a larger business, like that's pretty gut-wrenching for your working capital, right? To do that. But steady state, you know, five, six, seven percent dollar based yield is a lot more attractive um, as well. But I mean, I'm interested if, if do you think given what your experience is and what you guys are learning, do you think this is something that more and more, maybe it starts with sort of technology oriented companies where there's just a better understanding of, of technology and how it works, uh, you know, as opposed to say, you know, uh, a treasurer of say, I don't know, an oil and gas company, I don't know what, but um, <laughs> do you think that this is going to be something that just becomes a more common tool for businesses? Definitely. There were, I think there were a lot of interesting questions that were, that were in that. So first, I just think at Ramp, we have a, a fairly vested interest in trying to understand how are people moving money, storing money. And um, a lot of our, our goal is helping people get more out of every dollar. Can a dollar feel like a dollar five to a customer through technologies? There's a lot of the, the, the driving focus for us. And you know, we were seeing it even in our, our customer base. Of course, there's many, many, many traditional companies, but you know, we we serve whether it's it's large, you know, uh, crypto companies in their general operations, crypto exchanges in their their corporate spending. And so we felt like, look, it's as more and more companies are uh, not just spending in in fiat currency, but in, in cryptocurrency, we can't not learn about this and, and also have this firsthand experience. And so part of our our, our focus early on was just how do we you know start to get exposure and also take take things really seriously as a business and get into it. And um, I think even the act and, and exercise of learning about it has been great 
and not just producing yield, but but even in, in making sure that the company is well positioned to to learn about it. And I think it's fascinating in that, like, look, in many ways, at least for for me. I'm curious if you think about it too, Jeremy, but like it feels in, in many ways like early internet where, you know, all the, the direct applications of how things are going to be used are going to take years to figure out, but it's clear there's something there. And so I think that for many companies, if, if you think that future operations, you know, may intersect with, you know, the crypto web three worlds, actually holding some on your balance sheet, you, you think about it more, you learn more about it and follow along. And I, I think that just, uh, from a creating a, a value for a business in the future, it actually can be quite, quite high. There's lots of good analogies with earlier evolutions in the internet, but like putting some stablecoin yield on your balance sheet is is the proverbial toe in the water. And it's kind of like, you know, whatever businesses were like, okay, we have to have a website. We have to at least like put something up there, like who we are and maybe like a little bit of, you know, it's like the brochureware was the kind of concept back then, but it's there. And now you're saying, okay, what are, what are other people doing? And, oh, wait a minute, we could actually, you know, people can, Put a customer support request in through the web, or uh, wait a minute, we can act, you we can sell our products through there, or our product is the website, or whatever you know, sort of goes on. And I think crypto is is similar, right? As as businesses begin to dabble on this, and we've actually had a theory that that kind of this sort of corporate treasury side of things, and basically dabbling in 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 yield and so on, is it, sort of exactly what you said, just like a a gateway to be learning about it operationally. You know, all of a sudden you're transacting in a stable coin. You're like, wow, this is actually pretty powerful as opposed to an ACH or a bank wire or a traditional card transaction. And, and so it, it sort of leads people to, to look at the operational side of it as well. And so from kind of treasury capital to working capital, working capital to payments, right? You can kind of see how a lot of this stuff can definitely evolve. Totally. And I think that's exactly it. Like I am. Um... There's some businesses for for whom, like I think that for most businesses, holding, you know, Bitcoin on the balance sheet, you know, might be you know diving right into it and, and taking on kind of a few variables at once. But I, I think you're exactly right. Stablecoin is this really interesting first step, where you know, in many ways, it's very familiar. It's yeah. a dollar. It's tied to it. You're not taking on, you know, most people don't have experience with, with foreign exchange and, and, and forex and, and even you know other fiat currencies, let alone cryptocurrencies. And, and, and you start to hold these these different variables concept, and you start to, I think, see actually, you know, th- th- there's something different and unique, and, and you can start getting things where one, you know, the obvious of okay, there's higher yield back into dollars. I, I can do this. This is great. And so it's a better use of capital. But I think you're right. You, you also get these other side effects if you see how easy and simple it is to, to move funds in this manner, to track, to get you know instant settlement, you know other attributes, which are turns out really useful in lots of other uses. Yeah. 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 I think it is kind of this, this very interesting gateway that I actually think that many people, if they were kind of thinking in a clear-eyed manner about their um, businesses, would be using more. Um, and I think, frankly, should be using more. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're very aligned with you on the sense of how do we return capital to productive use in businesses, right? Which is there's these implicit levies that exist on businesses, which are all these costs. They can come from a lot of different places, but within the financial system, there's all these embedded costs and, you know, uh, you know can internet native services, internet native software, and actually now with crypto, right? Internet native protocols, bring the same kinds of unit economic efficiency and kind of the 10x improvement in in product experience that you get out of of internet services can that finally arrive 
in the financial realm, which maybe ties um, a little bit back to like your core mission as you described it. And I'm interested in, in, in hearing as, as you know, you've been at this for a number of years as well, which is, you know, fintech, I think for a long time has sort of been, you know, kind of innovating on top of a whole set of existing kind of infrastructure, right? So the traditional core banking infrastructure, the traditional dollar settlement infrastructure, card rails, and, and there's a lot of innovation to be had in just making those just easier to use and have better tooling around them. And, and I think you guys have done an amazing job just like getting out ahead of that. And I'm interested in, in your take on, you know, do you feel like does crypto represent sort of, you know, deep tech in fintech, right? There's sort of like deep tech in certain categories. Like, is it kind of going to a deeper level versus kind of innovating at the kind of automation user experience and data level, which is, I think, a lot of what we've seen to date from fintech? Yeah, I think your analogy is quite good. Uh, and I think it, it, it lines up with how many people perceive it, which is like, I do think that a lot of the crypto scene does feel like deep tech, but what's interesting about it is because you're able to to re-architect and get away from, frankly, just just poor in some cases to design decisions, things that are crazy of like, yep, on weekends, like no money movement, you know, despite <laughs> businesses increasingly, right. it's happening from armchairs, desks at home, things over the weekends, like like paradigms that don't totally hit. And so, in a way, I do think it's deep tech, but it, it, because it's rebuilding the building blocks, it's showing up. Yeah, in in a strange way, and even things like productivity use cases and, and interfaces that mm-hmm. I do think there's going to be a lot more innovation, and, and we're seeing it even over the past six months, year yeah. versus the past years that, that's speeding up. But I, I do think that in general, the APIification and and the abstraction away of even traditional finance layers to become yeah. interfaces interacting is actually setting this off. And in our space, we have an interesting purview to this because like my last company was was bought. Prior to starting ramp was bought by Capital One. And so we got to see up close, like what many consider to be the most kind of tech forward of the banks. How did it look? And, you know, I learned things that shocked me from, I know, sense of things that like, you know, core processing of credit card transactions did not happen at Capital One. It happened at a third party provider. It's almost for a developer. Imagine if you wanted to write, write code and you had to you know, instead of being able to access AWS, you had to phone it in, uh, tell someone else. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> And at the bottom of that stack are FTP servers and common yeah. delimited text files. <laughs> Completely, right? Maybe that, maybe, and, you know, and we, there were still COBOL developers yeah. that, that I met. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's nuts what's going on. And, and I guess what I would say is that I think one of the most interesting that's happening, at least in, in traditional finance and something that we're very passionate about is I think that many large banks and also many traditional finance, you know, service providers, providers don't think about is they fundamentally don't think about your time. They've been around for hundreds of years. Their founders might have died a hundred years ago. Yep. You know, they're taking bank holidays off. Yeah. Uh, and if, and I think part of the reason why Ramp grew so quickly was not just that um, we built software interviews that are easier to use and you know save you money, but that you would save people time. You know, if you can really build interfaces that are intuitive, match the people's workflows. Um, you can get the best out of fast and efficient, you know, financial settlement. But if you can make um, work easier and allow people to do higher order, more productive stuff, um, mm-hmm. that's actually where I, I think new new battle lines are getting drawn, and and why I think fintech is accelerated in many ways. Yeah, so it's, uh, there's obviously a lot of breath to it. Yeah, yeah, no, it touches so much the like sort of fundamental infrastructure changes, and 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 as described, like some of that's happening just by you know 
just building better software and leveraging data on top of kind of what is underneath still god awful. Some of it's like replacing the god awful with something more modern, like digital currency or whatever. And and then there's like this continuous cycle of like automation and user experience and just dr- driving that. And one of the ideas that we talk a lot about is the idea of programmable money. And mm-hmm. that's a concept that I think is pretty core to crypto as well. Yep. And when I started Circle, God, almost nine years ago, the thing that got me into it was this idea of, of programmable money. And you know, I, you know, by way of background, like I started my career building developer tools and programming languages and app infrastructure and app servers and like all this sort of stuff for the web and like had been building software platforms for a long time and around media and content and data. And so the idea that you could actually have like money is a native data type on the internet and then it's programmable with smart contracts was just really, really mind blowing to me. It was like, okay, you could actually have programmable money. And that's different than like the APIification or like open banking or plaid this abstraction layer to like kind of get at this or that or whatever. It sounds like for you, as you think about ramp, this sort of automating more things in the financial landscape of businesses is at the core, right? In some ways, it's like automating these things is about returning capital and time. And I'd be interested in, you know, when you think about what would be, you know, when you think about the target area of corporate commercial and corporate finance, what's worth programming? What's worth automating? What can you unlock? Like, what are the things that would really make a difference in the velocity that businesses have? Yep. All of it (laughs) It would be my trite answer, but truly like, what are companies anyway? Like, what actually are they other than, you know, organized systems to produce something, hopefully, you know, in a pure financial sense to produce returns. It's the notion that if you bring people, you know, time, money, resources together, you can go and do this. And, and I think that one of the, for many companies, you're listening, you're working at a company, you know, a lot of people who, who are, and I think a lot of people uh, identify and resonate with, uh, with the movie office space with just, you know, things are so inefficient because that's often how it, how it is. And I, I think that, for me, if you can both automate and program money, but even automate a lot of the workflow that goes with it, that's where the really interesting stuff goes on. And, and so, for example, I'll give you some one, one interesting quirk from, from the corporate card world and expense management world is, is the IRS you know, put out this rule that if you want to take a deduction for an expense over, you know, in general, you need to have proof of it. And if it's uh, an expense over $75, you need to have a receipt. So that one rule means that whether you're a company with 50,000 people, a small startup, it is set across literally what is every year, millions of, of man hours, productive hours being spent just collecting receipts, tagging it to the right transaction, closing the books, making sure if an auditor were to open the books or the IRS, you could actually go and uniquely find it. And it turns out it's just for, you know, to collect data that existed in the first place somewhere. And so a lot of, when, when we think about even programmable money and interfaces, one of the, the small things that Ramp does is we actually, you know, started to automate that process through. So the second that a, a transaction is triggered, you know, we, we authorize a transaction of above $75. If it's in person, a card present, we can text the cardholder, you know, pull in in Twilio, get a service. The user can, can take a photo, send it back. If it's an online purchase, 
um, we can trigger an email, they can forward an email, you can iterate with Gmail and actually, you know, say we don't even need a person to this in the, in the first place. Um, a transaction is authorized. Let's pull from the inbox and see, is there a new transaction from this merchant? Pull it on through automatically close it. And, and I actually think whether it's programming money or programming the yeah. other workflows around it, yeah, yeah. that's where really interesting magic happens. And you say, get rid of this crap, actually, you know, build your business instead of be wasteful on all the ancillary stuff that should be automated away. And so I, I think whether it's, it's programming or just automation, uh, there's so much value to create there. Yeah, absolutely. In blockchain land, we dream of a world of all these transactions being on chain, all of the, you know, the quote unquote audit trail is basically you know, perfectly viewable and you, 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 you sort of get to kind of the shared state of money and the recording of that and, and the reconciliation of that becoming, you know, becoming a lot easier. I'm interested, you know, in, in maybe changing gears a little bit in how much of what you guys do is working with startups and growth companies and sort of the, the appetite for startups and growth companies for just fundamentally changing the kinds of of tools and services that they use, and we we see that in SaaS, and you know, if you're a startup, you're just all SaaS products and and stuff like that. Just interested in that, and and how much how much of that is is a driver for you guys? It's a really good question. I actually think that the orientation of most of our customers is they've got some business. They happen to have to need credit cards. They happen to have to need expense management, accounting automation. But in many ways, in, in like the focus and brunt of what they're trying, incidental, uh, it's a thing that they need to to, to use and, and to cope with. And I think that a lot of, for us, what's made and how we orient the services is is something that it feels very familiar. You know, a credit card. You know, expense management. You might know accounting before, and so in many ways, you can substitute this out. But once you get into the service, you start seeing there's like. There's so much more behind it that's automating, that's showing you things that you didn't expect uh, and go for it. And so I actually think that at least in selling to companies, making it feel much more familiar and less foreign, it's a big asset. Like often people don't come and say, you know, I came to ramp.com because I'm looking for finance automation. They say, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, corporate card, you know, automate some stuff for me, uh, help me spend less, all, all that. In, in many ways, I think it was part of why as a first crypto product, we, we were so attracted and interested in, in, in stablecoin yeah. in that it's like, oh, I know this, this is a, these are dollars on the balance sheet. We already have dollars on the balance sheet. We're substituting with dollars in the balance sheet, but behind it was actually so much more interesting and sophisticated. And, and I think, I think in many ways, a lot of the, the products that grow most at extreme rates are really like that. There's an element of familiarity. It fits into something you already know, you yeah. already you already love, but then behind it can actually evolve yeah. uh, products rapidly. And so the, these gateway products or these products that are really radical beneath, but familiar, take a form factor yeah. that uh, got too lazy. I mean, the credit card was a perfect example of this. Like most credit cards that people use are the same cards that people's parents did. Yeah. Has it evolved in thirty plus years, and it, it can do so much more if you can, you know, take it. So we, we try to think a lot in those terms. Totally, yeah. We think of uh, USDC is is sort of you know dollars with the superpowers of the internet, and uh, it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, the internet's got a lot of really powerful capabilities, <laughs> and you just you bring dollars to that. That's awesome. I guess you know a higher level question too, which is a little bit on you know a little bit of where you see the world going, which is. You know, there, there's sort of a little bit of the view that, you know, if you look at commercial banking today, right, it's 
it's still like dominated by, you know, Chase and Wells Fargo and Bank of America and, you know, just the biggest, the biggest, you know, commercial and, you know, just integrated mega banks, right? The mega banks have, have all this sort of stuff. And there's obviously like the commodity products, which are sort of business banking products. And then there's like corporate finance. And as you kind of move up the curve, like there's all these things that, that happen for businesses. And when you think about the TAM for ramp, and you think about those companies, you don't have to name names, but but like, you know, those kinds of companies, you know, do you think this is a world where in five to 10 years, like similar to the share shift that happened in media and communications and retail with the internet, do you think that that's the kind of share shift that will happen going from the traditional financial market utilities into more internet native financial market utilities that are, you know, built from the ground up in the ways that that you're building ramp or that circles building what we're doing or other things like that. What do you think that looks like? Is that because at a, at a high level, right? I go out and talk to investors as well. And, and I think we think the TAM is extraordinary. It's a multi, many, many multi-trillion dollar TAM, right? How do you think about it? How, how do you think about that, that space? And without getting into like, you know, details of your product roadmap, you know, just sort of, do you see, companies like Ramp occupying more and more of the verbs of finance for what needs to be done to sort of grow. I do. And I'll give you a couple of frameworks that we, we, we try to use to think about this. And also like, what's the relative speed that you can sort of expect on this? So one, I just think that we, we've been in sort of a very interesting moment of time where in many ways, prior to the past five, 10 years, I think there's a few things in the conditions of the market you really couldn't enter this market. Like in many ways, my, my past employer, Capital One, was an anomaly. Rich Fairbank, who runs it, is alive and, and well. You know, his closest competitors, you know, James Pierpont Morgan, you know, tried it, died at the turn of the century, like 100 years ago. American Express was started in, in 1850. And that window really closed um, on it. And so there, I think in, in financial services, a lot of it is, is, is one, what's, what's your cost of capital? What yield can you create? How secure is this? And it's a business that historically where scale has really mattered. And I think that we've just entered a period over the past 10 years. And I think that we're very much in it where new competition can, can start to come in. And I think there's a few reasons for it. You know, one, I think some of the, at least in um, the card world and also in neobank world, you know, regulation coming out of the financial crisis, you know, people... Um, regulators not wanting want banks to be too big to fail um, to prop up smaller banks effectively incentivize you know uh, small banks who had a bank charter uh, to work with different and modern providers. So you didn't have to be a bank to start creating bank like services. The cost of, of interest dropped dramatically, um, um, which basically means that the the, the long standing advantage of banks, which is you know extreme low cost of capital, wasn't just with banks. You could go out and you could borrow if you could access this low yield environment coupled with technological innovations, whether it's uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, whether it's infrastructure players like Marketa and Stripe or Plaid or the like, suddenly you could start to go and access into the core building blocks of storage of money, assessment of risk, creation of payment vehicles, uh, low enough cost of capital that actually, even if you were just starting out, you had a focus, you could get, you could start to go. Now, the conditions were there. How do you build something that moves a lot faster? And, and I think when, when we were starting, we were trying to think through is like, okay, like these companies, even though they have a lot of issues are quite good at something. 
you know, uh, American Express, which many folks sort of you know, see as our, our kind of nearest traditional large competitor um, or us to them was extraordinary at marketing and brand. I, I truly think they have one of the best brands of, of, yeah. of all time. And so we thought, okay, if we're going to compete with them, it can't just be on the basis of, of, of great marketing, cool celebrities, great points. Like we're, we, we should get smoked. Chase, amazing distribution, Capital One, uh, amazing ability to assess risk. And so we said, what, what's going to be different about us? And, and we felt that one of the, the truly the, the weaknesses in this year, that none were designed for fast iteration, um, this product and engineering yeah. uh, led culture. And so let's make speed and ability to, to iterate quickly be really quick, both in, in the products that we're developing, but also too, in trying to identify where the traditional finance let people down. One of the first ones, you know, back to the IRS rule, let, let, let's take that and run with it. You know, this was true of basically any Amex transaction that companies were doing. Amex never thought about it. They said, we're, we're in the points business. We're in the, the, the brand business. We're going to leave the rest of it to, to concur, to expensify, to aftermarket providers. And that meant that for every company, they needed to use two sets of software uh, to do one thing. And they needed to plug into a third software, which was to accounting. How can we build product that wraps around that so it starts to save people lots of time? And the question is, okay, are you operating in finance? Um, are you operating in expense management? Are you operating in accounting automation? Are you operating in broader B2B payments? That Our fastest growing product today is in, is in payments that traditionally, you know, bill.com, banks, ACH transactions. Yep. That's been growing, you know, in excess of, of you know, 100% per month. And in 2021 and we're seeing that, that that rate coming into into this year and um you know it, it's this interesting exercise where suddenly if this approach of, of fast speed um is extending into all this do you actually start adding the tams um is it something different can you actually in, in the same way i think you're seeing this with cryptocurrency use cases you never imagined suddenly emerge emerge what can you do there so it's all to say I do think the TAMs will be much larger. I do think that there's going to be some enduring advantages that um, large banks will have. But I, I do think that like the the music industry, where some traditional folks reinvented themselves and you know became great, but also there's some modern players that really took things on. Uh, it's very much happening in fintech right now yeah. and um, may happen even faster than, than than I think is possible. You, you might be more right on the, on the leading edge of the speed that this is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's something about when sort of internet scaling hits certain things. And I think we've been floored just with like USDC. It's it's growing at a staggering rate. And as this and as blockchains get more accessible and scalable and usable, right? Just it, the unlocks that kind of start happening are, are pretty, pretty remarkable. But one more kind of high-level question for you, which is um a big part of of kind of the competitive advantage of fintechs. And if and if you ask, Jamie Dimon or or people like Jamie Dimon, you know, or the ABA or or Bank Policy Institute or any of the, you know, significant lobbying firms. I think there's this kind of concept that it's an unfair playing field, that you know, fintechs are not regulated with the same constraints. And so they have an unfair advantage. They rely on other banks and, you know, can kind of do things that that traditional banks can't. And, and that's clearly true, right? At some level, right? But I guess it it sort of begs like a higher question, which is, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about your own economics and your own like ability to innovate and your own ability to like go deeper in terms of what you can do with your products mm -hmm. and ultimately what forms of capital deployment you can you can provide for return on capital for your customers. I mean, 
do all roads lead like the highest growth fintechs to become banks, right? We're facing this right now with Circle where we're being, in a sense, compelled as a stablecoin issuer to become a form of, of national bank. And I'm just curious, do you believe that it's possible for fintechs to both become banks or have banks, however you want to talk about it, be a bank holding company and compete, as you just described, on the basis of just like speed and doing all these things and and just like philosophically, how do you how do you think about that set of issues, especially over the long run? It's fascinating. So it's um and I feel like I have a funny purview to it in that like the last company that we we started was bought by by Capital One North America. It was in the consumer bank regulated entity. Uh, today ramp, you know, is is not a bank. We we don't store yeah. money and you know it's not you know something we do. And I'll go through a couple of of sides of it, which is one I think what Jamie Dimon is saying in particular, I think is is really oriented you know, again, not a super expert. I think this is oriented at banks like Chime, you know, and others where, you know, they're storing money, you know, they might be storing a lot. And, you know, for the same transactions, uh, JP Morgan could be making 10 cent per swipe on a regulated debit uh, transaction, whereas Chime could be making, you know, 1.5% or 2%. And I think in, in many ways, that is both true, that there is an unfair advantage. I'd also say some of it was actually explicitly by design. You know, it strikes me, it's it's easy to forget, but that was that, that was the intent of the too big to fail regulation. Yeah. It was actually that smaller banks would be propped up um, and have a way of competing in that new uh, and alternative structures, which would be able to supplant such that you didn't see further concentration. And so, well, I think it's it, it certainly doesn't feel good, I'm sure, to be a large bank and be working just as hard, if, if not some cases more and make less. I do think there was some regulator intent in, in, in doing that just as a third party you know, bystander in that. Next, what I would say is that in some ways, the effect of, of regulate, like I think it's important to, like there are many cases I think when regulators can be really right, where you know making sure that people's, particularly if you're storing money, people's livelihood, they really understand the nature of the asset that, that they're they're getting into. And also that, you know, no matter what happens in the next case that, you know, you wake up the next day, crisis happens, your, your money is still there and still good, I think is an important service for regular supplies. And so I, I actually think that it's hard. I actually think a lot of the, the, the hairiest arguments start to come in where it's like, you know, like either you have to go with reg- regulators or you have to go outside of it. And this it's this either or kind of world. I think that at least for me, I do think that it should be possible to carve this in. I'll give you some analogies in, in, in some of the debates that we got into at Capital One, where even in, in, in computing and in security, you generally are on security is where a lot of these issues would, would, would start to come up, you know, in past experiences where people would say, look, like there was a governance instit- um, organization at, at this bank because they said, well, the regulars are going to look at us. And so we need to make sure that prior to the shipment of any new release to the website, there had to be a legal review. There had to be compliance review. There had to be marketing review. There had to be, you know, for, like um, it was effectively three months of reviews for any new feature to be shipped at, yeah. at least at my team at, at Capital One. We said, well, if I'm updating interest rates or if I'm, you know, changing the way that money is held and it could have this effect, no problem. Like that's that makes sense to me. But you should be careful about about that. But if we're updating a button on the website uh, to change the color, uh, surely there, you know, we don't need eight councils to review this. And I think in many ways, I think many companies could just just crushed and stop moving slowly is that all decisions are regulated with the same weight and same rigor right. that truly the important one needs to be. And and I think I think one of the wonders of AWS, but also too even of 
you know, cryptocurrency in general is effectively you can compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. You can have different protocols apply to different parts of the infrastructure. And I think that kind of paradigm mm-hmm. is the right way to, to approach this. Where even in running the companies, if you want to hold um, funds, that could be great. You know, do it. Approach that with, with with care, and you can talk about you know even divisions within that. Yeah. But um, trying to explicitly design your own organization or, or shipping infrastructures and and, and, pro- and like practices to to sort of understand like where is there really risk, where is there not? Isolate, think through, um, so you can actually both you know take care of of really these important regulatory concerns, but also ship fast. And so, um, yeah, yeah. So how do you think about it, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very similar. And I think you know, obviously, we're, the the space that we're in is, is we've always been in sort of these gray areas, and you know, there's just all these technologies that are emerging that you know regulators haven't had their ha- haven't had really any specific let's just say rules around, and so. It's interesting. It's like, you know, you want to interface with DeFi. Well, what does that what does that mean? <laughs> like, you know, there's never been anything like it's a completely mind-blowing, like, oh, there's a decentralized capital market. How do you legally interact with that? And so I think just at a at a high level, that sort of enterprise risk framework and sort of how do you, you know, empower a product organization to be able to, you know, drive towards decisions and, and have real risk weighting against like what, you know, what is what is something within a framework that really is, if it's rated this way, you know, how do you take it, take, take the time to really analyze it and mitigate it and so on versus, you know, smaller scale things and, you know, balancing that out. So it's, I mean, look, this is, it's like the heart of the, of the issue for fintechs is, is sort of that balancing risk and, you know, and enabling high velocity and everything else. But no, it's something we all struggle with, you know, all the time. This has obviously been a really great conversation and, and super appreciate it. I will just note for listeners in the next episode of the Money Movement, uh, we're going to be joined by Scott Lawen, CEO at Candy Digital, to discuss their work in sports NFTs, why they started with Major League Baseball and the current state of the NFT market. With that, Eric, I want to thank you again for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed this. 